when we prepare for a meeting, this is true in person or online, we ask a question, not how will you know it's a good meeting. I want to know how you will remember it was time well spent a year from now, right? What does the meeting do for your organization? What decisions have you made? What behaviors have you changed? What uh, innovations have you unleashed on the world, right? That focus, a meeting is just a tool to accomplish something else. It's not something in and of itself. And so too many people design the meeting for the meeting to be good, but nothing happens afterwards, which leads to frustration. The challenge we have, and this is true both in person and especially online, is that there, there's never really any good before metrics. People don't want to measure the quality of their meetings on a regular basis before, so they have an after to compare it to. Because I think fundamentally everyone knows their meetings are terrible. Welcome to the Data Binge Podcast, a library of discussions with technologists and business leaders focusing on the human relationship with technology. Three, two, one, deploy. Hey everyone, welcome to today's episode and thank you for joining the discussion. If this is your first time listening, you'll find that I've been heavily focused on capturing guest conversations as live broadcasts, primarily on LinkedIn Live, but also deploying out to YouTube and Facebook as well. And if you'd like to view the live video broadcasts of these interviews, I encourage you to do so via the links provided in the show notes of this episode. Today's discussion features Matt Homan, CEO and founder of Filament, an organization that designs, facilitates, and hosts collaborative meetings, conferences, offsites, and any type of human collaboration environment, really with the objective of enabling meetings to produce measurable results that move organizations forward. A LinkedIn recommendation format on his LinkedIn profile from Megan Zave, hopefully I'm pronouncing that right, of Zave Law here in California, that'll add a bit of color to this introduction. Matt has created an environment where ideas don't seem crazy, where there's something for every personality and type of thinker to engage with, and groups come out of work sessions deeply impacted. For more than 20 years, Matt has been involved in the leadership spaces of designing creative experiences and everything including learning, skill building, collaboration, and knowledge delivery. From building in-person and virtual spaces that allow people to have better meetings, which he does at Filament today, to using arts to teach business skills, all the way to disseminating hard-to-explain concepts through illustrations and the drawing of pictures. Matt is an attorney by trade, holding a JD from the Washington University St. Louis School of Law, and not only spent time practicing earlier in his career, but also taught pretrial practice and procedure as an adjunct professor of law at his alma mater. What I really enjoy about this discussion with Matt is how he's explicitly stitched together the many opportunities in his career in areas like law with the collection of experiences in creative design thinking type endeavors as a consultant and leader and his experiences as an entrepreneur building innovative conferences and meeting places. It's clear that Matt is one of the top practitioners in helping people and organizations collaborate better together and have better meetings. Some things we talk about in the episode, how to build useful spaces in person and now virtually, because that's important, that allow us to do what we want to do, whether that's creating innovative products or ideating around cultural transformations, including methodologies that allow for better meetings. How virtual meetings have translated the same terrible cultural qualities of meetings to this new online reality with intensified challenges of inclusiveness and attentiveness, things I'm sure we're all feeling are very relevant right now. How changing the meeting culture comes from the top and how the status and connection of reporting out to leadership about the organization's direction, for example, has trickled down in our organizations and has formed prohibitive collaboration behaviors that frankly don't move business forward. How to have better meetings and how, why doing so can make your people 40% more effective from tips like scheduling 47-minute meetings to build gaps in back-to-back scheduling and removing PowerPoint and other artifacts away from collaboration time so you can focus more on collaborating while you are actually collaborating all the way to asynchronous collaboration and the meaning of what it is to truly prepare for a meeting. Finally, we talk about how to build better conferences because right now, who knows when the next time is we'll be going to a conference in person. 
where networking, learning, and connection isn't as much a serendipitous and ad hoc condition, but more of an engineered outcome by conference facilitators. How do we maximize that hallway time is what Matt calls it. If you're looking generally to optimize your organization's meetings by looking at changing culture, by making smaller impacts across your team, or just by personally saving yourself from the enslavement of company meetings, you're going to really love this episode. Thank you so much for listening. And as always, wishing the very best of health and safety to you and your families. Now I bring you Matt Homan. Matt, good morning. How are you? I'm doing well. Welcome to this live production of the Data Binge podcast. Thanks for joining. I am happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Definitely. So I'd love to kick off this, this session with a, with a comment. I'd love to hear what you have to say about this comment. Matt, sorry I'm late. I've been in back-to-back meetings all day. What's your what's your gut reaction to that statement? I, that uh, that is said perhaps a billion times a day, most often by three to four times a day by each person in business uh, meetings. Uh, it, it's the bane of our existence, but it's where most of our work seems to get done, right? Yep, yep. Uh, I probably say that you know three, four, five, six times a day as well. So, Matt, you and I know each other through a mutual friend. Uh, we were introduced. And we immediately got on a call and just started talking about what we're both interested in. And I'm just interested in, you know, energy management and time management. And I've never, yeah, and and, and meetings are super important. I'm trying to think about how to optimize those as well. But you brought this entire world of academic and philosophical and and truly uh, uh, efficient ways to think about meetings where are you coming from? Like, what's your passion there? And can you talk about the journey to to get to this place where you're just really coaching big businesses on how to spend their time and collaborate? God, it's a, I, the journey. It's it's one of those pictures where looking backwards, it feels like a fairly straight line, but in the middle of it, it was every bit of jumbled spaghetti you can imagine. Uh, I used to be a lawyer and uh, started uh, my own conference called LexThink almost 20 years ago. And I was getting tired of the traditional, originally the traditional conference, right? The people sitting shoulder to shoulder, facing the same direction, watching someone read their slides and being frustrated that it hadn't really changed in 50 plus years, uh, despite every bit of research on effective learning and engagement, proving that it's not the right way of doing things. And so when I started my own conferences, I started to realize that engaging people in person, whether at scale with... 20, 50, 100, many of those lessons were also true in smaller group settings. And so I've kind of, in in most careers, uh, I've found kind of an accidental way into becoming this meeting person uh, because meetings are terrible. You look at wanting to fix the problem. uh, What percentage of the average person's time, even before COVID-19, was spent in meetings and what percentage of those meetings were effective? And realizing there's a significant challenge to solve there and realizing also that, quite frankly, the bar is so low that even a marginal improvement, a 5% improvement in an organization's meeting effectiveness could have, in theory, billions of dollars of impact on them, their customers, their morale, their culture. And so that's really what started to draw me there. The, uh, the whole path to where I am now is, uh, I don't think we have this set for a four-hour conversation, Derek, <laughs> but uh, just really started to think about, here's an interesting problem. It's being solved in a dramatically uh, inefficient way if it's being solved at all. And it was a fun thing to tackle. And I found that I really enjoy helping smart people think together better. So as this facilitator, meeting designer, host, uh, it scratches a lot of itches for me. And and what I like about your journey, too, is is you're, you're, you are bringing this, this sense of academia to it. Uh, I saw that you uh, were an adjunct professor of law. Uh, at WashU uh, for a number of years. Uh, you have a JD degree from there. Uh, you, you spent some time with the Microsoft Experience Center. You're spending all this time around creative people and creative arts and conferences. You're dipping into entrepreneurship. It sounds like the legal uh, industry all up is it's a very work at the office type of industry. So there's a lot of experience that you're bringing from that lens as well. Where does the creative 
piece fall into all of this? Uh, the creativity and, and the experience and you know, really looking at how the user, or how the people that are involved in these meetings are interacting with, with each other. Like, like, what's that all about? Oh, I, I think there's, there's, it comes from multiple places. One is that never having been trained as a facilitator or trained in meetings or even come up a traditional corporate world, I was never really inoculated that this is how we always did it and this is how it has to be. And so I'm always someone who's creative. I always joke about the idea of having idea surplus disorder but I'm someone who really likes to look at things from a different perspective. And so coming from outside of business and being plopped down and seeing, my goodness, this is how everybody spends their time and energy in these ineffective ways of engaging and collaborating. I started to be able to apply these lessons that I've learned on this rather circuitous career journey. I ran for a short amount of time an organization called Coca Biz that used the arts to teach business skills. Uh, so everything from improv to dance, um, singing, voice, uh, movement, physical arts, using all of uh, drawing even. Uh, work for a company called Explain, which is a wonderful opportunity to really engage on drawing pictures of hard to understand things. And so starting for me, picking these little pieces together, and maybe it's like when having Lego when I was a kid, but taking these pieces of different things and saying, ooh, these could be fit together in a way that is different and unique and more valuable uh, is kind of where I started. And what, what happened with Filament, I know we're going to talk probably a bit more about it in a minute, but I started thinking, wow, the problem even in trying to facilitate creative meetings uh, is that the space doesn't allow you to do what you want to do. You get into a ballroom and all of a sudden you can't put things on the walls. Uh, I've been to more than one Microsoft technology center, most recently in New York, and had them come screaming at us because we started to move the tables, uh, even though they were on wheels right? This lack of uh, control over your environment. On top of that, the moment you start to put these different pieces together, you're like, wow, I could actually build something dramatically better and more useful. And uh, having, I guess, the courage or the stupidity to actually try it, uh, despite people trying to talk you out of it, is kind of where we've landed in what we're doing now. And you, so you mentioned filament. So, so filament, and, and please talk a little bit more about that, from my perspective, it, you guys are helping to make meetings matter. You're helping smart smart people have better meetings, collaborate more. And you're mentioning this space and this uh, facilitation and, and design and, and your tables. Um, but we're all at home right now. So you know, what has been the transition from what you were doing maybe just three months ago with some of your, your clients and what you're doing now, how is, how is a, a company that you're, that you, that you founded and you're leading now who works with people in person and collaborating in person now working in this virtual space? Like, I'd love to talk about that, that yeah. entire translation. Yeah, there. It, it, it's been, a, it's been a weird time to be in the in-person meeting business, right? The, the thing about yeah. filament here in St. Louis and this is our first location. We expect and hope to have more of them uh, at some someday in the future, especially when we once we come out of this. But here, our idea was we want to do in the room only things you could do in the room. And so we were building this in-person meeting experience where space was a part of it, where methodology was a part of it, where banning PowerPoint was a part of it. Really trying to think about if you're everyone's in the room, what can we only do in person? And so that was really our thesis on the way that we designed and delivered what we did. And then very quickly, about six weeks ago, seven, eight weeks ago, we started to do some work and saw that this was on the way. We had worked with a big insurance company, their legal team, uh, and they were already preparing for it. We worked with Washington University's, their health and safety group, and they were preparing for this. And so we realized that at some point we had to build a virtual offering. And instead of doing what everyone else has done thus far, which is just translate your in-person meeting online. We thought, well, if everyone has to be virtual, what could you only do virtually, right? How different would that be? And so we started to think about, we built this meeting studio that I'm in right now. Uh, we started to think, wow, if you're doing stuff virtually, you're not using the same tools. Uh, you don't have the same amount of attention, uh, but you also have the luxury of more asynchronous collaboration. You've got teams you know, tools like Teams as an example uh, and other things that allow you to say, this meeting that would have otherwise been a day. And it was a day because we were flying people in. It was the only time we could get on people's calendars. Now that might be a stream of work that happens over the course of time. 
And when you're virtual now, we can get those decisions that otherwise we might not have been able to get in the, in the room. We can bring in outsiders if necessary. We can even let introverts, and we focus a lot on introverts, even in person, but we can build it so everyone has an equal voice and not just the folks who speak most loudly and most often. And so that, posi- that transition to virtual meetings became kind of another innovation challenge for us. How can you do really cool things when everyone's virtual? Uh, because we had spent all of our time thinking about all those cool things we can do because everyone's in person. And we're finding that many of the things translated really well and other things we've had to throw out and find new ways of accomplishing some of those, uh, some of those challenges. But it has been a really cool insight especially because we see so many folks are just now coming around to the realization that they've taken their meetings that were already terrible in person and just made them more terrible by using unfamiliar tools and unfamiliar ways with dramatically less attention than people had to spend beforehand. And one thing that you just said, I mean, a a couple things that just personally interest me a lot. And I think a lot of people are interested in this as well is this idea of, asynchronous collaboration. So, and I think Amazon I've heard does a a great job at doing this. You know, what, how can we prepare for the discussion? I think Steve jobs is a strong thinker here too. How can we prepare for the collaboration while we're in the collaboration zone versus preparing while we're together? Cause we're just wasting, wasting time. Right. Um, and then there's, there's that piece. And another piece I pulled out of that is this, this, this idea of inclusiveness and that's what I've been noticing quite a bit on virtual calls. It is so hard, especially if you have, you have seven, eight people on a call. How do you extract the people that are not paying attention, who probably have an idea and who want to talk about something and they can't? It's it, it, All of a sudden, it's, it's the, the loudest people are just talking over and, and continuously talking and stretching the meeting. What are some ideas and things that you're doing in, in this virtual meeting space that are kind of talking to some of these different things? Well, let me let me start with with the the last piece, and I'll unpack that. Is that you're noticing in virtual meetings that uh, people are a handful of folks are talking, monopolizing the time. Uh, that's in person meetings too. I mean, we may not notice that as much because we get different body cues. It may feel differently, or quite frankly, we may be the person talking all the time. Yeah. And so that behavior hasn't changed. What has changed though is the ability to moderate that behavior with the cue, with the leaning forward, with some of the body language, uh, or even just a quick finger that, to, hey, let someone finish because they've got to unpack an idea first. And so those cues disappear online. They're much harder to deliver online. So it exacerbates the problem that's always existed. One of the ways to solve for that is to do the same thing we do in person, is to give people multiple opportunities to break out into small groups. Uh, If I've got the CEO in the room of a big company, that CEO might appreciate but doesn't always notice how everything revolves around him or her, right? Because they fundamentally are owning the uh, maybe the direction of the organization and, and ultimately everyone's paycheck. And so that changes the behavior of people in the room uh, when the power has significant differences, especially for teams that aren't used to working together collectively. And so even putting people in small rooms, and we'll say this quite, quite often, is that you might be stuck with a CEO once, but everyone else for that moment in time will not be with them. And so you're able to elevate discussions. You're able to get more insights. And frankly, when you've got a big group of people in one meeting, only one person gets to talk at a time. If I now take that same big group and move it into five or six or seven groups, two really amazing things happen. The first is that now six or seven conversations are happening at the same time. So you're multiplying the amount of insight, ideas, uh, understanding, and connection. But the second part of that is that I now, the the smaller groups that I build, if I'm that introvert, I now have a chance to speak more. It's easier in a small group, right? Even some of the cues that are harder to notice even when you're in person in small groups change. Mm -hmm. And so that's also true if you're using uh, Zoom as an example Uh, is using breakout rooms quite frequently, you're able to get people to have those smaller conversations. And we're still playing with the best methodology for when to do that and how. But we're starting to even lean in that one of the first things you do when you're bringing a crowd together is put them into a networking 
uh, reception for 10 or 15 minutes as the beanie begins because now they have peers and connection that otherwise they would have had grabbing their cup of coffee or sitting next to someone and shaking their hand that they don't get virtually. And so I think that that challenge of imagining a different way to use these tools to start to solve for some of that inclusiveness, it's the same thing that Amazon does when you talk about built reading the memo ahead of the time. Uh, one of the things that we use meetings for and where the virtual meeting do, uh, gives you so many other options is that a meeting on a calendar invite is a procrastinator's best friend. I don't have to do anything until I get to the meeting, yep. right? Because I know my peers will not have done anything until we get to the meeting. And so if I could set that meeting for three days from now, I now don't have to think about this work for three days, right? There's no place for you to see, for me to make my work visible because we're not together. But if I then say, we're going to think about this asynchronously, even if we're meeting in person, is I expect everyone to read the memo. I expect everyone to think about these seven things and give me a response. I expect to then, when we come together, to talk about those responses versus just unpacking them at the beginning. Now that meeting becomes dramatically more productive, whether you're in real space uh, or you're virtually. But setting those expectations, it isn't just about the meeting. It's about a massive change in culture for an organization with a limited set of muscles that they've exercised in the past to make that happen. And then one last thing, and this is something you talked about at the very top of the broadcast, is that the I just finished up another meeting. I'm sorry I'm late. We have managed to make meetings, even on our calendars in real life, the easiest game of Tetris possible, right? Our... Yeah hour, 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 block stacked one on top of another. And for everyone who's out there, this is your life, right? Especially if you don't have control over your own calendar. And so even a simple tactic that we use is we suggest people set meetings for 47 minutes uh, because people can't add 47 three times in a row. So there's no way that you're ever going to get a meeting scheduled without at least a 13 minute break before the next one. Uh, and that's a really simple tactic. The other is to start to understand organizationally when you're competent and able to meet. Uh, if we all are at the office for eight hours, we at least can have this imagine, we can imagine that everyone is able to focus for those eight hours of time, right? Now, do we get even 90 minutes of attention in our virtual worlds with five kids online learning, one playing a game, two arguing your spouse, yep. angry with you because you're sucking all the bandwidth because they have a big meeting that's like 10 feet away from you on the other side of a wall. And so now with virtual, we're trying to, again, replicate this meeting, 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 meeting cadence with far less attention, uh, dramatically less time to prepare. And so you've got to rethink that your meetings online are not just duplicates of your meetings in person. Uh, build in significant gaps and realize that the attention, even of engaging online, takes more. It takes more energy uh, in some cases than it does when you're in person because I don't walk around, uh, if I'm facilitating something or in a meeting, I don't walk around with a mirror here looking at myself for half the time that I'm engaging with the room. But even mo we've done that to ourselves, right? If you look about the Zoom, and I don't know how to do this in every tool, but if you can manage to make your picture invisible so you're not looking in the mirror at the same time you're engaging with people, it changes your capacity to pay attention. You're processing less than trying to, oh, do I also look okay? And what does my background look like? And I'm looking at this person, much less 15 or 20 others in, the, in, in what looks like the Brady Bunch or Hollywood Squares setting. Well, it probably doesn't help uh, either, Matt, that you know we have millions of HD 4K monitors surrounding us so that you have this one meeting space of looking at LinkedIn right now in real time, looking at LinkedIn over here to look at folks that are commenting in. There's a ton of folks that are, uh, that are uh, engaging on the, on the commentary. And then you have uh, my one note and there's all these, there's a cell phone. And then of course my, I don't know if anybody can hear this, but my things are turmoil is a muck. Some someplace in the house, <laughs> someplace in the house, and I got my noise canceling headphones. All these different things are, are are at play here. So, I mean, the things that you're describing are so normal, and I think working for Microsoft now, or if you're working for a technology company or any company that's invested in some kind of productivity software, 
it's so easy to grab someone's time. All you have to do is click a button and then now you just own a fraction of their life, of their day, of their ability to, to make an impact. Um, right. No, no, go no, go ahead. Like, what are your thoughts about that ability to just to grab someone's time? Well, I, I, I think about. I mean, that that is fundamentally a, just a, a workplace behavior problem. But what you're grabbing is it's not just you're grabbing their time; you're grabbing their ability to do work that moves the organization forward. So, if I say to you, "I need an hour of your day because I know that you're not doing anything and would just be sitting." twiddling your thumbs or playing a video game until I take that from you. It's like it's on offer. And the truth is it's not, right? I had that gap in my calendar because I was going to work on a presentation to the C-suite or to the board next week. The moment you snap that away from me, you now have made my evening worse. You've taken time away from my children, perhaps. And so I think from a culture standpoint, number one is build the permission to say no to meetings, right? Make that okay. But the other thing is that understand what the math is of meetings. This is one thing that is astounding to me is that an hour meeting with eight people is an eight hour meeting, right? It literally is you've just taken a day of productivity outside of your organization for an hour because you wanted to share something with the people in the room, right? And so if I think about even how to decide probably the best way to make meetings better is to stop having so many of them, right? And to start to realize that if I have a meeting that is eight hours and it is just you reporting to me, if I'm the CEO and I'll make it 10 because math becomes easier, right? If, if my job is to have everyone walk around the table and effectively give me a six minute presentation and update on what they're doing, right? So six minutes, six minutes, six minutes, all of a sudden now we've taken 10 hours of time outside of our organization. If I, as a CEO, then turn around and say, I want each of you to give me 15 minutes of time or even 30 minutes of time and share that uh, by writing as Amazon does or even recording a simple video, the time load on the organization is dramatically less. Even if I just have that six minute conversation one-on-one, 10 hours of time becomes two hours of time right? 10, six minute conversations for you. And then the one for me being in the middle of it as well. And I look at this idea of why we do meetings and I don't think people are answering the question. And then how many meetings, uh, Derek, I want you to throw your organization under the bus, but what percentage of your meetings in a given day, do you know exactly what's on the agenda, exactly what you hope to accomplish, the preparation necessary for you before you attend and a really easy escape valve with no recriminations if you decide you've got to leave. Well, that's a that's an interesting question, and it's a little biased because I, of course, am talking to one of the the, the country's best <laughs> meeting facilitators, so I have some some interest in this topic. So I see that happening with my peers all the time. And I've identified, and that, that was even happening to me when I first joined our organization. I mean, we're, we make productivity software, and now it's even AI-powered. So your ability to, to run away from some of this very intelligent productivity tooling, is it's getting harder and harder and harder and easier and more visible for people to, to get on your calendar. Uh, what I've noticed is there's a very small niche of people that in, uh, some of these colleagues of mine, we just talk about this all the time, we're constantly trying to fight against the technology and to have personal values and rules for how we escape or how we carve out our own time. For me personally, I, I try to refuse or decline 25% of all meetings that come my way, one out of four. Um, if there's no agenda, I don't go unless it's a, obviously a customer put the, right. put the call on, on my schedule. I'm still trying to figure out the introductions thing. I mean, introductions take 25% nearly of every single meeting. Uh, and there's, there, I mean, there's just, there's just so much. It's like managing the calendar. I have an hour every single day just to manage my calendar. Right. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I, it's, it's very poisonous and it's, it's a topic that I think people are paying a lot of attention to. I mean, so what are you thinking? So now we're in this world of not only am I going to book this time in your calendar, I have a link embedded in the calendar appointment that's going to go half hour to half hour to half hour. And when you pr- and you click on that link, boom, now you got a video that pops up. And now you're on video 
10 hours a day. And people are twice as likely now than they were eight weeks ago to, to turn on their video on, on conference calls. What the hell is going on here? <laughs> you know, I, I think that I, there was this reaction, I think, for many of us that, oh, I don't get to see my friends or my colleagues or coworkers in person. So therefore, let's do video because it'll be that next best thing. And the truth is like video is, is harder. It's more exhausting. Uh, it's more difficult. And again, it gets to the fact that number one, does this even need to be a meeting? And number two, do we need to be on video? Because the moment you leave it to your attendees to decide, depending upon again, where the power is in this relationship and who's in the meeting, you get everyone who joins. Right? We got we to gotta join. We, we got to join now because the boss is on video. And so... I think it'd be really interesting to, to play with a couple of things. One is to, number one, to do some of the things you're already doing. Uh, really think about calendar and meeting uh, cleanliness and etiquette. But the second thing is that understand that maybe half of your meetings is okay for them to be on the phone. Now, this, is, this is the weirdest part of this because most of my meetings that weren't here, that we weren't facilitating, just engagement, were telephone calls. And I love telephone calls because I could go for a walk. Right, we have a twenty thousand square foot space here in St. Louis. I've been the only one here for six weeks now. Uh, so, it, but I get I get to walk around when I'm on a telephone call, and I get my ten thousand steps in. The moment that I'm tethered to this video, even though I can kind of move around here versus sitting down and having headphones on like you do, it's still not the same. And then I add to that to the mix, and and this is the hardest part: is that no one trains people how to have meetings. Nope. Right. Now, so yeah. I, you, you mentioned Microsoft and we, we talked about Amazon. The reason Amazon meets that way is that's their culture and that's what their founder wants. Right. Uh, in lots of organizations, though, the CEO is the only person for whom everyone bends over backwards to do things. Right. So, oh, I've got to meet the CEO. I'll be darned if I'm not on an airplane for that 15 minute report out in a 25 person meeting because there's status and connection involved. And that starts to trickle down. And so I think part of this is how, how do we teach people to meet better? How do we teach people to collaborate more effectively without meeting, which is where some of these software tools should come into play? Uh, and how do we keep people from using them as much as they are? Right? Well, if there was a no meeting, uh, I saw a lot of companies have experimented with no email Fridays. Right, the idea that you get up and talk to someone or call them versus sending emails internally. Uh, can we block a day without meetings? And what would that do? Right, heads down, or at least four hours, where everyone in the organization commits that we're not meeting for four hours. No one can set them, and that's our chance to get work done at the beginning of the week. Uh, because right now we've never made it easier to interrupt people. We've never made it easier to be distracted. And I want to come back to one quick thing you said, Derek, before we go on is that you mentioned that when you're engaging here, you have multiple screens, right? Mm -hmm. So we kind of do the same thing. I've got, they're not nothing on them right now, but I've got two gigantic screens in front of me. You can see the 360 at the top of my camera. So I use an owl camera. That if I'm working with documents, I can put one here and one here. Uh, we have a, a Jamboard here to my left as well. But if I'm in person, I'm not looking at one screen, right? How rude is it when you're at a small table in a conversation to pop your laptop open as a physical barrier between you and the person you're talking to and look at your phone and pull out your iPad. We would never do that in person. And so not all are we only using unfamiliar tools, but we have built in five times the distraction as we engage with those tools than if I just had nothing but your screen and your picture here in front of me. And that was my entire world, just as if you and I were talking face to face. And I'm thinking more about what you said about the cultural aspects. And as you're talking, I'm just thinking about what we do um, in our organization. And there's there, leadership is very passionate about carve out some time for training, carve out some time to to get some projects done. We're putting this time on your calendar. Like think like those are initiatives that are done. Things that are we have technology. I think uh, my analytics. I think it's called. Uh, I'm not on the office team, but the, you essentially have machine learning driven insights being shown to you. Hey, you have this amount of focus time this week as opposed to last week. 
Maybe you should start scheduling 45 minutes. So there's all these little right. nudges that are coming in with technology, which I completely appreciate. But I just don't know when when you're talking about this cultural thing. Uh, I, I just I would just finished a book by Cal Newport. He's an MIT professor. Uh, it was called um, uh, "So Good, So Darn Good They Can't Ignore You." Yep. And one of the things he talked about is how checking email is a mindless escape from more challenging tasks, and to only check email three times a day or have it that scheduled on your calendar. And it's almost as if meetings are becoming that. It's almost as if technology and screens, like I'm not going to pay attention to you because I want to go into some mindless escape into something else and not solve this problem. What are your, what are your thoughts about culturally, like how the technology is fighting against this, this culture? You know, I, I think that, you know, the, the, the first step, you know, stage one is to admit you have a problem, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, and so we did this exercise at Filament in person, you can do it virtually as well. And we ask people to, to take just a little index card. We have a little, these little tiny tables and crayons and markers and stuff, but they take an index card and I say on the top of it, I want you to write the percentage of your day that feels like it's in meetings in an average week, right? Pick a percentage. And then in the bottom half of the card, I want you to write what percentage of those meetings feel like they're time well spent, right? They feel like they're well facilitated, they're well planned, that they were worthwhile, et cetera. And it is not uncommon for us to see 50, 60, 70, or even 80%. And the higher up in an organization you get, the more percentage of your time is devoted to meetings. But to see that the bottom number be 15 or 20, right? And so what you've done, and this is why, I mean, it starts, you've got to admit you have a problem, is that if I said to a senior executive, what if I could give you 30% more headcount without it costing you another, another dime? What would you do? They take it in a heartbeat. What if I could make your people 40% more effective? Absolutely. I don't believe you, but let's give it a shot. Well, that's where meetings are for us. And then I think about this, and this is a, the only, and this has been a while since we've worked with Microsoft, but the only company that used PowerPoint worse than Microsoft five or 10 years ago is the military, right? Didn't know Even that, yeah. when you're preparing for meetings, if your preparation isn't thinking about the meeting, planning for it, understanding what experiments you might try in the meeting to engage people differently, but preparing a deck or even a document, then you haven't even thought about the meeting, right? That's the problem of PowerPoint in particular. We haven't had a shown a PowerPoint slide here at Filament in person for, I want to have one of those uh, number of days since an accident signs from an old factory is what I really am dying to find. It's been 400 some days. Because we want it to be in, in the meeting, insight discovery, not information delivery. And I think about even when we have meetings on the calendar and there are meetings that are important, what percentage of our time goes to preparing an artifact to help us walk through that meeting? How much of that time preparing the artifact has nothing to do with the content of the core ideas, but with the fonts, the, the uh, clip art, the design, Right. We now have, we're building so much more of our time into the stuff around the edges of a meeting instead of the core. What do I want to accomplish? Why are these people necessary? And just, and even what decisions will we make? And if we walk out of that meeting and we, we haven't made decisions, what decisions do we still need? And who's in charge of getting them? Right? That for me is where the tools are really lacking, right? We can schedule, we can bring people together, uh, we can write stuff, we can build presentations, but we don't have the guidance on, hey, like I want the thing to pop up on my screen that says, or your screen, Derek, you've been talking too much. Maybe keep it down so the introverts have a chance, right? That's the intelligence I want that helps us guide us to do these things better than just to waste cycles of on the edges of the core of why we're getting together. And I, and you, you're, you've probably read this book five million times, but the effective executive—I I think it was uh, Peter Drucker—and he—I mean, these are these are rules and uh, tenants that have—I mean, it was like a thirty-year-old book or a twenty-year-old book or something like that. And, and a lot of these concepts are discussed there. And one of the things that he talks about is how you should spend more time on uh, preparing your thoughts and preparing what kind of outcomes you want from the meeting than the actual meeting. 
at um, least two to one, if not three to one. And this, and this is the, and that's the concept of your asynchronous collaboration, right. where you should be collaborating beforehand, uh, so that when you get to the meeting, you're just a lot. It's all performance oriented, you're, and there's there's something coming out of that meeting. What like what are your thoughts about those success metrics and how you know if you've been successful or not? Um, God knows how many meetings you've hosted personally. Like, how do you know, you know, you're, you're halfway through, you're th- three quarters of the way through. How do you know and how do you get to that objective? Oh, it's a great question, Derek. I think that the answer is different if it's in-person versus online. So in-person, you get a feel for the room as a facilitator. Are people doing the work? Are they feeling like they're uh, moving the ball forward? Have we had to pivot because something else became obvious and, and crucial? And I think that in the room, it's sometimes easier to pay attention to, are you accomplishing that? Uh, Post-word, you knew net promoter score and so on and so forth. What we, when we prepare for a meeting, this is true in person or online, we ask a question, not how will you know it's a good meeting? I want to know how you will remember it was time well spent a year from now, right? What does the meeting do for your organization? What decisions have you made? What behaviors have you changed? What uh, innovations have you unleashed on the world, right? That Focus, a meeting is just a tool to accomplish something else. It's not something in and of itself. And so too many people design the meeting for the meeting to be good, but nothing happens afterwards, which leads to frustration. The challenge we have, and this is true both in person and especially online, is that there, there's never really any good before metrics. People don't want to measure the quality of their meetings on a regular basis before, so they have an after to compare it to. Because I think fundamentally everyone knows their meetings are terrible. Right, they might have this Lake Wobegon theory of my meetings here are slightly above average, uh, but you still end up with this. This we've never been taught how to do it. Now, on virtually, the measuring the temperature of the room is dramatically harder. Uh, you can ask certain questions, you can engage, you can kind of see how people are are engaging, but it's dramatically different because you don't hear laughter, you don't hear engagement, you don't hear that when everyone's got their microphones muted, and you really only know near the end uh, if it was a worthwhile expenditure of time and effort um, because they, they generally don't know until the end. And it might be months later when they realize, oh, we're now, the things we've set in motion at the meeting are finally happening. I'll add one last thing. And I think this is when we talk about coming from the top and culturally, uh, we do all kinds of, of scores. There are a handful of organizations, uh, mostly small ones, but who really use meeting effectiveness as a metric on promotion. And, you know, when you start to think about what your KPIs are, uh, I know you are not a a small user of KPIs at Microsoft. If I think about, am I red, yellow, or green on meeting effectiveness, on the amount of time uh, my meetings require uh, of my team, of how they judge my meetings, how those meetings might compare to others, right? Who are the meeting ninjas or experts at Microsoft and how are they elevated? Even from a facilitation standpoint, whether it's running a meeting in a small group or trying to facilitate a larger group, facilitation is also not a rewarded skill as a standalone thing, though the people who have the best teams are great facilitators. They just never think of facilitation as a skill, as leadership. And so we try to teach leadership, but we don't try to teach some of those core fundamental parts on meetings, facilitation, et cetera. Uh, I just read a book and I can't remember the name. It's Patrick Lencioni's newest book. And he talks about how a CEO's job is to do great meetings and how at that highest level, you have to be good at it. And uh, I just wish more, and, I, and not because it's the, it's the nail to our hammer, but I, I wish people came to us and didn't say, wow, this, this meeting was great. I wish they'd come to us and say, wow, this was just as good as the rest of our meetings. Yeah, yeah. But they, I, but, but they don't generally have that, uh, have that experience at the office. It's really interesting that you're combining facilitation with leadership uh, because it, it's very apparent that when you have a leader come onto a call because they're, and you see this a lot in sales organizations. I'm in a sales organization. Like they, a salesperson has an objective or they're not going to get paid. Like they are trying to move the ball. And then you have the, so typically in these type A type personalities as well, 
you see a lot of that where it's like, hey, we got an agenda. I have an objective. Uh, it's, a, it's usually a pretty selfish objective, um, but we're trying to get we're trying to get to this this point. Um, yeah. But I definitely see the difference between folks who just are driving through a meeting and like getting things done and then, okay, are we good? Okay, let's end it versus just kind of showing up and just kind of being there and, and, and letting others kind of take the leadership role. Um, it, 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 it's funny. I think about the movie Glengarry Glen Ross and it wasn't yeah. always be meeting, right? It was always be closing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, totally. And, yeah. and if everyone in your meeting can't answer the question, by be, by doing this meeting, we're moving the organization forward in this way. If they don't have an answer to that rest of that sentence, you might not need to be having the meeting. And and I, I think about leaders. One of the most amazing things about our work, and it's a gift our clients give to us all the time, is that we get to be in rooms of really smart people solving really the same challenges over and over again from 30, 40, 50 different industries, nonprofits, schools, uh, big companies, et cetera. And the, the problems that they're focused on, I'll use a, the, the buzzword that everyone's, that's been on everyone's mind for the last year and a half, digital transformation, right? Building the digital enterprise, those sorts of things. They're not technology problems, they're people problems. Yeah. And the best leaders, you just see them. That One of the, uh, one of the leaders of uh, one of our local universities here, uh, St. Louis University, Dr. Uh, Fred Pastello, my first meeting with him was... Literally, he comes in, we have 15 minutes, says, this sounds like what we've, we've aligned on, here's our deal. He then uh, leaves me to his chief of staff, and one other person say, these are the three things I want you guys to accomplish before Matt leaves, and he's off to another meeting. And I didn't feel like I was pawned on to someone else. I was like, wow, like that's how it should have been. He got, his, he got in, he was personal, we got done what we needed to get done, he made sure there were action items that came out of it, and then he delegated to those people who would get it done. How many meetings have we walked out? And I think about this all the time when we talk about culture, right? People say, oh, we've got a great culture. We like each other. We believe in the mission of the organization. And I'll say, well, then how many meetings have you walked out of where uh, the leader of the meeting says, hey, it sounds like we're all on the same page. Anybody object? Any? Oh, good. Looks like we got it. All right. We'll see you next week. And then the meeting after the meeting happens. And now what the conversation, I can't believe they decided that. I can't believe they did that. That's culture, Right. And fundamentally, so much of the behaviors that drive us crazy uh, in our workplace are exhibited most or at least most often in meetings. Just a simple meeting tip, and this isn't mine, uh, but I, we find that it's a really great idea is that in a meeting, silence means no. All right, this wouldn't work at a wedding, right? When the priest or, or pastor ask everyone, do any objections? Do we all think they should be married? But imagine in your meeting that you say, we're going to do this. Uh, does everyone agree? And you then have to get a verbal yes, 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 yes from everyone. Uh, because if they don't talk, uh, it gives them cover to hide from the decision and ultimately complain about it as if it's not theirs. And if they say no, you can either unpack it or you can do something as simple as saying, okay, I understand you disagree, but are you committed? And the, the whole conversation around silence, I think that is playing a big part in this evolution of this virtual call. And a lot of things are coming out of this virtual call thing. And I, I can't wait to start talking about that here uh, shortly because you have a lot of thoughts about that. Uh, but Tim Ferriss, one of his, he's one of my favorite uh, podcast uh, hosts. And he, in one of his uh, sessions, he was talking about how to do a success or host a successful podcast. And one of the things he said is let the silence do the work. And that was such an interesting point because when you're interviewing somebody, yeah, ask the question and let the question, let the silence do the work, let the question be heard and let the person think about it before you try to come and save them from their own thoughts or resurrect them from whatever anxiety they're, attack they're getting. But like, it, it's the same thing in person where it, it's more uncomfortable to have that silence. But I'm finding on calls, Matt, you know, the other day we were on a call and a, and a customer kind of asked a question and it was a gnarly question. And it, it, they were, it was a little upsetting, uh, the, con the, the topic we were talking about. And I just let my mute just hang. And I just played silence chicken, mute chicken <laughs> with the rest of the folks on the call. And it, at least 15 seconds went by and it was torture. But oh my God, the, 
the outcome of that was amazing because it's like right. everyone started laughing and it, it's like it bubbled up this very human element of of the discussion going back to this this video call thing and, and just some quick quick statistics um uh, so microsoft teams just hit 200 million meeting participants a day you got zoom uh that's at 100 million uh uh, I'm sorry, uh, Zoom just claimed 300 million meeting participants a day. And these are massively growing numbers. Right. Uh, Zoom had 10 million just in December. And now they're at 300 million. Uh, Microsoft had 20 million daily active users. Now we're at 75 million. Google has 100 million daily meeting participants. So that just massive volume and blooms right. of this, these virtual calls. What is it doing to us, Matt, in terms I, of fatigue, I, I, uh, challenge? I, I, Oh, I, I think there's how oh, there's so many there's so many different pieces. I want to come back if I can first. I want to go to the silencing just for a moment because yeah, you know, that, that was deposition uh, training one on one back in in my lawyer days. Is that the the silence in your head rough feels to you three to four times longer than it feels to your audience, right? Because number one, it's already starting before it starts because you're thinking about it, and uh, you know, like your clock just seems to be going fast. Like oh my god, no one's answering. In person, silence works unbelievably well because you have the capacity to feel literally the palpable feeling of everyone looking around who's going to answer, right? Online, it's so much harder to use because you don't feel silence together. You only feel it by yourself as a participant, right? So you don't have that kind of room full of, oh my goodness, is someone going to speak? Because you feel it and the awkwardness, the people shifting in their chairs. I'm convinced that online silence doesn't work as well, even though I wish it would. Uh, that wouldn't have been 15 seconds in person, by the way, in your story. It would have been five or 10 maybe. Uh, so what we've started to do is really start to think about, I'm going to set up a question that we're going to talk about. Uh, but before we collectively have this conversation, we're going to take five or 10 minutes in small groups, break them out in groups of two or three. Let you talk about that. The facilitator doesn't have to be in the room. I might pop it around the room, but I can come back and say, now share what you've learned in your room versus share your opinion, which changes the willingness of people to engage. The second thing is as a facilitator who literally has control of the room online, like I can set breakout rooms, I can do all the things, I can mute you, I can do these things that I can't do in person the balance shifts so much more dramatically than us being all in it together that we'll try and delegate as often as we can the calling on people uh, to others, right? So Derek, if there's 15 or 20 of us in this call, I might say, Derek, I'm about to ask you this question. I don't need you to answer it, but I need you to pick the person you think has the best answer to it in this group. And now you're calling on someone, you're the bad guy, I'm not. Uh, I also can set up in a way to avoid some of the silence when we've got multiple people is I might say, Derek, I'm going to come to you with this question, uh, but Cindy, you're going to be next and then Steve, right? And let people prepare because in the room, you can kind of do that by walking around or engaging with them or just looking at them and telling them, I got you next. This point doesn't point to anybody and everybody's screen is different anyway in the order in which they're all sorted. And so even those little things of how you translate a really kind of reflexive, automatic in-person experience online requires thought. Uh, I know you're kind of generally, what is this doing to us? I don't know that anybody knows. I think what's going to happen is in the next three to four weeks, uh, you're going to see either a slowing of growth or even a, uh, a lower amount of participation as people start to realize that this could have been an email or a phone call. Uh, I think you're also going to see a rise in... People just say no. It is exhausting to look and engage with multiple people all at once, all the time via video, while you're also worried about the kid in the background, right? I mean, the mailman's about to come and we all know your dog goes apeshit crazy for this one mailman when he or she's here, right? That idea is, I, I just should be a phone call. So I think we're going to immediately start to rebound a little bit away from this all in on video. Uh, but then we have to figure out the tools to use to make this effective. How do we do our work? Uh, because that's a question that people aren't really asking. Uh, and they're certainly not asking, how do we do it better because we're distributed? Uh, with the exception of some of those groups that have always been distributed and they've thought about it. 
but they were also distributed with people who still had kids at school versus home or spouses who were elsewhere versus also, you know, the other side of the dining room table. So I think psychologically, we're going to see uh, some really interesting things come out of it, but only because it's mixed with grief and fear, right? This is, this isn't just one thing changed for everybody all at once. This is everything changed for everybody all at once. And so the amount of engagement with these tools, it isn't something you can isolate and learn exclusively from that because also we all know people who've died or been sick. Our kids are worried. Our adult parents are in danger. Uh, our job is at risk, right? All of these other things compound. So uh, it's going to take psychologists, psychiatrists, and researchers a decade to unpack what this last three to six weeks has done to all of our brains. And, and thanks for that, Matt. I, I, I'm What I'm thinking about too is like all these online conferences, um, there's this constant online con- like every everything that I don't know what 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 the newest and latest and greatest on Coachella is, for instance, but everything is turning into some type of of online thing. You come in, and in in the beginning, I'm like, this is great. It's it's going to be offered for free, most likely, like a Microsoft Build conference. I think it's going to be offered for free versus you know three thousand dollars a ticket or whatever for developers to come on in, um, but what's the engagement look like, you know, and then, and then you mentioned when you're not getting on a plane anymore and you're not glad handing folks, like what, what kind of value can we pull away? Like, let's say you're, you're someone that's putting together this mass virtual live event or conference or something. And what are you thinking about now? Um, I, you mentioned the small groups and kind of pulling people off. But if this, this is big collaboration of multiple speakers and all these different things going on, what what would you do about that? What kind of advice would you give to Coachella, for instance, if they were hosting something like this? Well, so, so let me let me uh, Coachella being a, a bit of an outlier. Let's talk instead about a traditional uh, Microsoft conference, right? Okay. Uh, big company, whether it's Salesforce or Apple, any one of these kind of these big conferences. Right now, those conferences, even today, I think are predominantly a waste of time when it comes to content right? You put people shoulder to shoulder, they're all facing the same direction, and they're getting inspired by a speaker on stage. Great. That spe- If I wanted to know what that speaker was going to say, I could have watched them on YouTube. I could have seen their TED Talk from six months ago, right? The idea that we go to conferences for information delivery to learn things, I think is the excuse we give our bosses to get them paid for. But we go to conferences to meet people, right? It is a concentration of people who are like us, who have the same challenges we have, who might buy from us or that we can buy from, right? That's why we go to these conferences, plus to get out of the house. And so if you think as a con- as a conference builder that the entire purpose of our conference is to deliver information to people, I think you've been wrong about that for a significant period of time, uh, only because people, if all they wanted was the information, could have gotten it elsewhere, right? We've never, it's never been easier to consume information It's in our fingertips. It's on every device. People go for connection. And the moment you're building a virtual world, right, a virtual conference where it's just talking head after talking head after talking head, your engagement is going to go way down. uh, And people aren't going to learn that much, and they might consume it in bits and pieces afterwards. So how do you double down on the connection, right? How do you build the hallway time into those conferences and how do you be way more intentional about it than you are now? Right. I think about the traditional conference and I'm, uh, I know that there are some people who are uh, in their hackles up as they hear me talk about this, the traditional conference, the networking, the best networking is accidental uh, and it shouldn't be, it should be intentional. How do we think together, not just drink together. But if you spend an entire day of throwing people information at people and then magically say, let's, let's open up a bar. Uh, let's get together. And then you see a bunch of glad handing with business cards in one hand and drinks in the other. That networking doesn't even work for half the attendees, right? It certainly doesn't happen work well for introverts. And I know that I'm generalizing. And also look at the number of women in a meeting and then the number of women who attend those networking, right? Alcohol and douchebags <laughs> in conference doesn't work well. And yeah. so where I think there's a huge opportunity here, uh, is how do and people are playing with this? How do you build 
the connection and the small group collaboration and problem solving in these online events. Because the moment I'm consuming your event from a screen in any sense, then why do I even need to consume it? Because I could have watched that speaker elsewhere. So that's my, uh, I don't think it's going to be a good time for conference organizers for another year. And I think that we are going to be so fatigued in watching talking heads on screens that unless there's some connection for me and conversation that goes both ways versus just listening to someone tell me something, they're going to see a massive drop off in uh, attendance and certainly engagement. What is filament going to be up to in the next couple of months here? So we launched and pivoted really quickly. Uh, we built a separate virtual meeting offering called practically in person. So you can go to practicallyinperson.com. Uh, it is literally still in beta. We put it together as quickly as we could. Uh, we have leaned in really hard on not just inline meetings generally, but really thinking about all of these lessons we've learned over years and years of doing better in-person meetings and how to think about where they translate online and where we need to speak a different language. Um, we're hoping and really thinking about this as a, as a chance to elevate our expertise uh, outside of our region. Right. And when you do in-person meetings, our biggest customers are the ones who come back over and over again because they're here in St. Louis with us. Right? They might bring people in nationally or internationally for the meetings. But to now have an opportunity to build a platform that uses a mishmash of the right set of tools as necessary to deliver these meetings, uh, they can be consumed nearly anywhere. Uh, it also gives us an opportunity to build and scale our team in a more effective way, because, again, if you need to be behind a screen, facilitating the meeting, you don't have to just be here side by side with us. So we are optimistic and uh, excited, uh, but also, I mean, we're nervous because everyone is trying to figure everything out, out all at once. And a lot of our customers are having bad times right now because they don't have their workforce in, they don't have customers buying. Uh, so our fingers are crossed and uh, we'll get through it, but it'll be an interesting path. Yeah. And, and I mean, just the massive expertise that you bring to the discussion we're going to have to have meetings. Organizations are going to have to move forward and there's going to be people involved. And the cross-section of all those different things is is what you're really providing, how to do that really well. And I think to your point, leaders aren't getting trained on the topic. Uh, individual contributors aren't being trained on the topic. And it's just something that we re we should really be focusing on. So one of the last questions I, I tend to ask uh, my guests is, if you had seven days to accomplish something and you had unlimited resources, what would that, what would that task be? What would that objective be? What would you do? Oh, that unlimited resources is a dangerous lack of constraints on this question, Derek. <laughs> uh, if I had unlimited resources in seven days, uh, I would do two things and they're both two sides of the same coin. I would buy uh, and engage with buy is probably the wrong term. Uh, the best vision, best virtual facilitators in the world and make them all part of the same team, right? To build a world-class model of engagement, learn from them, and to also deliver something where we would become the Accenture, PwC, Bain, et cetera, of this. That's where I would start. Uh, the second thing I would do in a very short amount of time is put together a set, a, a tool that does the things that we need to do that none of these other tools online do all at once. Uh, there's lots of a lot. Uh, most of the tools that are out there are either built for asynchronous collaboration or for or to try and approximate an in-person meeting, like a design thinking meeting, putting post-it notes on things, et cetera. That uh, toolkit to really do the way to meet the way that we want to meet and that we're able to do really well in person doesn't exist yet. So I would uh, I would build something quickly that was very simple that got us to that point, uh, that allowed us to do the meetings the way we designed, because that's what we can do here in person. I love it, Matt. That's that's awesome. I'm really looking forward to just seeing the journey, seeing what you guys are, are creating here practically in person. I haven't personally checked it out, but it sounds like it's going to do well. And uh, just really looking forward to additional discussions and leadership. I'm following you on LinkedIn and you've been posting some pretty awesome stuff. So I encourage folks to follow you. Is that the best place to engage if people have yeah, questions or comments? Yeah, LinkedIn is probably the best spot. Uh, Twitter uh, I'm at Matt Homan, M-A-T-T-H-O-M-A-N-N. -T -T -N. Uh, we do a newsletter every week called the Monday Morning Meeting uh, that has a mix of tips, tricks, ideas, links, et cetera. And I do, I can't quit without uh, giving a shout out. We've got an amazing team that has been along for this journey uh, in this kind of crazy pivot. 
that we've made. So uh, just a shout out to Dawn, Todd, Bob, and Randy. Uh, thanks for being along with us as we do these crazy things. Thanks a lot, Matt. Thanks for joining the discussion today. All right, everyone. Thank you so much for listening today and having some fun with us on the podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please follow me on LinkedIn or at DRUSS Network, D-R-U-S-S Network on Twitter or Instagram. And you can also reach out to me anytime via email at Derek at thedatabinge.com. The Data Binge podcast is a personal thought form where we share knowledge and ideas. Views and opinions expressed here do not reflect those of my employer, Microsoft. I really hope you enjoyed. Thanks a lot.